Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, everybody. I uh, want to welcome you to episode 105 of the Corona virus episode you know <laughs> it, it feels it feels like that for sure yeah I, I know man and we're all here so it's like every week everybody shows up so that's a good sign this is bill roden uh bill roden on sports here in an undisclosed location uh upstate new york i'm kind of like kurt streeters i don't want to tell everybody where i'm all these cats be moving up here <laughs> bring that shit up here <laughs> Anyway, uh, I'm, 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 <laughs> like during the day, they talk about, you know, remember back in the 60s, you know, brothers be marching for integrated neighborhoods. And I'd be like, no, well, you know, I'm good. <laughs> we got our quota. I'm black. <laughs> right. Anyway, uh, hey, we're here with my great uh, co-host, the great Jamal Murphy, holding down Brooklyn. What's happening, Murph? What's up, Bill? You know, same day, different, uh, <laughs> same day, same circumstances, really. Oh, tell you yeah. the truth. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm holding it down. I'm, I'm in good spirits uh, besides what's going on, uh, you know, everywhere else in the world, yeah. um, in Minneapolis particularly. Oh, my God. Yeah, we should get into that. Uh, why don't you bring in, we got some great, uh, great guests today, man. Well, we got our, our uh, yet another co-host and a great guest. Why don't you uh, introduce everybody? No doubt. We're, we're waiting on Erin. She should pop in here any, any minute now. But uh, we, have a, we have a return guest, uh, the great Kurt Streeter, reporter with the New York Times. We talked to him during the U.S. Open, uh, the last, last year's U.S. Open. I guess this, this year's won't happen. Uh, I don't think we get, we haven't had an official word on this year's U.S. Open, have we? But I guess there's no, no way, right? They're trying, I don't know, they're, you know, they're trying to have it. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, that's, sure. that's, that's breaking news. But uh, I wonder, well, we, we can talk, remind me. Right. Uh, well, okay, well, keep, keep bringing people in. Then I'll, I'll, I'll try to hold right. my But my, Yeah, my. like I said, Kurt, the great Kurt Street is with us, reporter from the New York Times, uh, former... National with, columnist, right, Kurt? Not, uh, no, I'm not a columnist, but... <laughs> Fuck yeah. it. Yes, you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to you. you. Hey, yeah, hey. Man, you. out there, man. No, yeah. man. You, you a columnist. I'm me, man. Come on now. Oh, <laughs> Kurt, Kurt, this is not what? the era of being modest. This is not. That was, last, that was pre-coronavirus. That's no. Well... Whatever, whatever, whatever it is, we'll figure this out uh, at some point. But formerly of the formerly of ESPN, uh, LA Times, and Baltimore Sun, uh, Kurt Streeter. Kurt, thanks for joining us once again. Yeah, man, appreciate it. Glad to be here, no doubt. And of course, we have uh, one of the one of our biggest friends of the show, uh, Steve Wilson, renowned jazz musician, saxophonist, uh, professor. I think you just you just finished. Uh, uh, finals a couple, like a couple weeks ago, so you're free now. Uh, yeah, thanks for joining us, Steve. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. Just got in, got in the last of my grades last night, so I'm uh, officially free from the semester. Uh, more to go, but great to be here with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I gotta tell you, man, that that was most. Uh, I just uh, finished up, um, you know, uh, my first semester at Arizona State, and I gotta tell you, the hardest thing was grading. It was the hardest yeah. thing. And that's so much the, I, I, you, you were probably better at this than me, but you had to get these incremental grades, right? Like at each right. juncture. Right. And uh, so that's the only area that I flunked in terms of, you know, the students have to give you their feedback. <laughs> <laughs> right. It was like, you know, Professor Rowe would all due respect. I was telling him, man, yeah, just, just be... Take it from me, y'all are pass. You're passing. <laughs> <laughs> but, right. But that was that was that was rough, Steve. Well, yeah, and for you, Bill, particularly, you know, just being your first semester and, and then having to go in this situation, you know, because because there's no rubric for this, you know, right. and uh, everyone's adjusting. So you're not alone. You're not alone, man. It it upset even the most seasoned of vets. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> are you okay? <laughs> uh, well, it's good to know. Although my excuse. I was I started teaching Zoom back in January before mm-hmm. any of this hit. 
So, mm. you know, I had no excuse. I, mean, I was kind of, <laughs> I wasn't doing it back then. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> oh, man. It was great having everybody uh, on. Jamal, how's, how's, how's everything? You were saying, and in fact, you know, we were talking to Kurt, uh, the great Kurt Streeter, um, you know, offline. But um, Jamal, you were saying how in Brooklyn, almost 90% of the people you see are wearing masks, but right. Kurt, you were saying almost what ninety percent of the people out in Seattle, uh, were, at least in your neighborhood, were yeah. not wearing masks. I think that thought that's a very fascinating. And, and mm. Steve, you're down in the village, so mm-hmm. I mean, how, so so, uh, what are you seeing, Jamal? And, and Kurt, what are you seeing? I like to catch, what is, what's everybody seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, in Brooklyn, or even when I when I've been in the city driving around a couple of times. You know, majority of people I see have masks on. Um, there, are, there are definitely pockets of people uh, who don't. Um, and even people with masks, I see a lot of times they're talking to each other and they have it down on their chin. I'm like, well, that's the time you're supposed to have it on. I mean, you're, <laughs> exactly. That's what it's for. Um, so, not a, you know, not everybody's using it correctly. But I do think for the most part, you know, here, here in New York City, um, people are taking it seriously uh, to that point. I mean, you have Cuomo on every every morning, uh, you know, telling us what's going on and, and, and expressing the seriousness of it. And, you know, New York, um, you know, is the epicenter of, of the, the virus right, you know, right now. We, had, we have the most cases, the most deaths. So I think people here are just taking it more seriously to the point where I almost feel happy that I am, I almost feel safer in New York City Wow. Yeah. When I look around in the country and people, a lot, a lot more deniers and that kind of thing. So it's just an interesting dynamic. What about you, Kurt? Because, I mean, well, as you yeah. pointed out, Kurt was, I mean, uh, Seattle was like the, the original epicenter. Right, right. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, obviously I, I write for the Times, right? But but most people don't know I, I don't live in New York. I live in Seattle. And uh, um, this was the original epicenter um, where it hit first, just probably about 25 minute, 30 minute drive from where I live. And uh, right now, it's in my na- in my neighborhood, which is ten minutes from downtown. Um, if you're walking around in the daytime, which I mean, we don't do all that much, and when we do it, we do it in the middle of the street because I, I don't live in a residential neighborhood. But people are around. My family wear we wear masks. We mask up every time we leave the house. I'm seeing I'd say ninety percent of the people are not wearing masks. And, oh, wow. um, we got you got wow. other people. Families getting together, two, three, four families getting together with kids, have you know, mm. on their front yard as if it never happened. Mm. And I, I and and my my theory on that is that uh, you know it's pretty affluent neighborhood. It's not a rich. It's a middle middle to upper middle class neighborhood. A lot of Amazon tech workers and all that. Um, people uh, who are definitely hot, you know, uh, white collar folks, and mostly white by far here. Uh, they're not touched by it. They don't know people who have been touched by it. They don't know people who know people. They they can stay home and work, you know, all day. They don't really have to go out. They order everything, whatever. Um, it, they're they're just in a form of they're in a in a in a cloud kind of feeling almost like well, you know what are you talking? What, what is everybody talking about? This isn't real, right? And uh, is I mean, as most black folks is. We see, we seem to know if if you don't know somebody directly who's been hit or who's in the hospital or who's who's died, you know we know somebody who knows somebody for sure. All my all my friends, all my black friends, and um, so that's it's just a different kind of reality. Is what I what I'm feeling for, you know, for us. Right. And uh, but yeah, these folks are just wow. It's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. What are you seeing, Steve? Now, you're in the village, right? Yeah, I'm in the East Village. And uh, generally, it's about 75 to 25 mask versus no mask. And mm. and generally, the ones who are not wearing the mask are, you know, the 20-somethings. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of, you know, um, I guess, I don't know if they're new to the neighborhood or, you know, but, you know, you'll see them either biking or, or running, jogging. Um, or, um, you know, sometimes just walking, but most of the, uh, all of the merchants, if you go to 
you know, a restaurant, of course, just to get takeout or something, but any merchants you see, they are definitely wearing masks. Um, and most of the old timers around here uh, definitely want, even, even um, and I speak overtime, I mean like the folks left over from the old East Village. So some of the, what we would call fringe people, I mean, they're still, you know, we have a very mixed neighborhood and you still see some drug addicts around. Even they are wearing the mask, <laughs> you know? So maybe hold, holding people up. Uh, yeah, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You know, so, so it's, it's, it's kind of a trip, but, uh, but even in my building, which is a mixed building, uh, basically everyone is, you know, wearing masks. So, but anytime I go out, I always have my mask and gloves on and uh, you just can't take any chances. So Your gloves too, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah Doorknobs yeah. and all of that stuff. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, hey, uh, hey Kurt, you wrote a, a, an outstanding piece. Um, uh, one uh, that I read about 1918, Epidemic Parallels, and one that I want to get to about Running While Black. Uh, just personally as a journalist, man, what, uh, what did you learn from the 1918 piece? Uh, and then I want to talk to you more personally just about that piece about the running, because that, I guess, is linked to the, uh, you know, we're getting, we're falling behind on black men being murdered. You know, that was about the, uh, mm. the Georgia shooting. We still have got to get to the Minneapolis shooting, but, right. was, you know, 1918, pandemic, did you learn anything about sort of the linkage? Well, it was a cool, it was a fun story to, to, to report and write because I really didn't know any of this stuff. I mean, I, I knew, I knew vaguely about the, the 1918, 1919 pandemic, you know, the Spanish flu pandemic as it's called. Yeah. Right. Um, but I didn't really know, I, not that much. And I didn't, I, I didn't know, I don't really, I'm not a big hockey guy. So I didn't know about the, the Stanley Cup in 1919. I didn't, I knew that Seattle had a team and it was really good back then. But um, didn't all know all. Yeah, it was all from scratch, and so the story was really about the 1919, 1919 Stanley Cup, happening in March, March of nineteen. Uh, the two teams in that Stanley Cup Finals were the Montreal Canadiens, who everybody knows, right, mm. and uh, the Seattle Metropolitans, who almost nobody mm. knows. Even even wow. the Seattle people don't know that that. The, the Metropolitans had actually won the cup. They'd beaten Montreal in 1917 and, um, to win the cup. So they're playing in 1919. This is 1918 was the terrible year for the pandemic, right? They, it, there, were, there was a first wave at the start of the year for a couple of months. Then it kind of died down a little bit. And then it came back with a vengeance in mm. like September, October, November, mm. and kind of started petering out in December. But it killed, what was that? I think, 675,000 Americans. Mm. Wow. I mean, millions worldwide. Um, it was, this was the second wave. What happened was, it's believed that that, that, that virus started actually uh, in, in America, in Kansas. Right. And that was then transported. Remember, World War I is going on at the same time. Yeah. So troops are going over to Europe coming back to the States, going all over the world. And the belief is, is that it, it, it may have um, uh, mutated in the trenches in World mm. War I and then came back to the States. And it was just, I mean, this thing was like, they say you could catch it in the morning and be dead by, by, by nighttime. Wow. And it was mm. hit. And when it came back, I mean, it was hitting everybody. It was hitting all ages. Mm. And, and I mean, young people, uh, a lot of folks in their 20s and 30s, I think that might have been even the majority. Mm-hmm. So flash uh, move forward then to, to a little bit to March of 1919. Everybody thinks that the, that the virus is gone. Seattle had had a bad outbreak in, in December. And then it sort of, you know, peters out. So they're having the Stanley Cup and it was a big deal in town at the time. I mean, they were, the, they were like the, the, the pro team. And... Um, Everything's going fine. Everybody's in a mood to celebrate. World War One's over. People are coming back from that. And they go, uh, they play a really tight series. And in game five, one of the players from the Canadians starts getting sick, leaves, leaves the ice. Nobody notices why. Um, turns out within, within a week, as my, my story shows, he's dead. Mm, wow. The, the, the pandemic got him. And then half of, half of the Canadians got sick. 
many mm. of the many of the um, players in the Metropolitan got sick, so mm. they canceled the series. So they they couldn't play. It's the mm. only wow. Stanley Cup. The only Stanley Cup that's ever been canceled. Wow. In, in midstream. Um, wow. So and and as far as I know, it's the only uh, major championship. Uh, uh, North American major championship that's ever been canceled once once it started. So on the Stanley Cup now it says ni- the year nineteen nineteen Metropolitans Canadians and like suspended. You know, wow. So, so what a great story. Yeah. So it was really it's really um, it's a really a cautionary tale. Right. You know, yeah. uh, don't don't celebrate too soon. Be careful what you wish for when you're talking about coming back from sports. That's right. Um, you know, this rush to get back to sports, I think is. It, to me, it's just ridiculous. Um, yeah, capitalism that, over it, over human lives, it, you know. But did that story kind of tip you toward not rushing back, or had you been thinking about that already? I've always Is felt it? that. I've always mm-hmm. felt that we shouldn't rush back. Um, but this just really confirmed it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, every virus is different, so you, you know, who who knows? But we just don't know what's going to happen with this thing. And uh, you know, if the players if the players don't get hit, I'm I'm concerned. What about the coaches that are older? What about the players' families? What about the grandma? And then, you know that what you know. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine a sport like hockey or let's say football. Talking about coming back, you know, you got big dudes. I mean, a lot of them are obese, right? Technically, even though they're fit, right? And that's one we know that that's one of the um, you know that that's a warning sign. That's a, that's a very dangerous. Um, so you're at risk. And they're like be- beating up on each other and breathing heavy on each other. I mean, yeah, that doesn't really seem to make sense at all. And there's uh, no way. Yeah, there's no way to make those those sports uh, socially distance or anything like that. I mean, to me, it's it's an obvious cautionary tale uh, about sports in these days coming back. But also, there are so many you know analogies to 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 the other you know to government at that time. Um, was trying to suppress information. Yeah. We see, we see that mm-hmm. now. You know, yeah. we see there was a bunch of denial out there. Oh, yeah. this is, this oh. Is, even at the time, they were saying, oh, this is just an ordinary, a regular flu. Turned out not the case. So there's so many things that, that you can draw a parallel to uh, throughout society between the, the Spanish flu. Also, the, the Spanish flu didn't originate in Spain. Yeah. And people are just trying to jump to, you know, it was really a way to jump to, a conclusion and say, hey, it's not, it's not, has nothing to do with us, it's them. And, you know, yeah. we got people calling mm-hmm. it the Chinese flu and, may, and maybe it did start there, maybe it, who knows? You know, yeah. really, a hundred years from now, who knows what, what the truth will be? Mm-hmm. Right, as you were saying, it's probably but, starting the White but, House. But yeah, I mean, since, since you see all these parallels, even, even in other parts of society, especially with sports, um, it's a cautionary tale because, you know, everybody's so ready uh, to bring these sports back. You know, all the fans just think it's, it's not even a debate to some fans. It's like, it's just, it's it has to happen. It's going to happen. And you're, and you're putting all these, you're putting players and fans because even let's say there aren't going to be fans at the stadiums, but we know sports brings people together regardless. So, so our, like you said, people in Seattle are already uh, hanging out family, you know, different families, friends with each other, no mask. What, what happens when there's a game on TV? You're not going to invite yeah. people over to the house and have more people <laughs> over and watch, and watch the I game. Mean, the Seahawks. Yeah. No, you know, you know, uh, Steve. I, I was wondering, and it's kind of, you know, you, you, uh, you know, uh, you, prof- you know, professor, but largely you perform. How is this? What's sort of the plan for nightclubs and and uh, performance and all that? I mean, everybody's trying to be creative. What, what about in your sphere? What, what's going to happen? What, what's been happening? What's going to happen? That's a great question, man. Uh, first of all, let me say hello to Aaron. She's here. So good morning, Aaron. <laughs> good to see Hi, you. Hi, Aaron. Hey, Aaron. Sorry, um, good to see you guys. Hi, Kurt. Hello. Aaron um, works for CNN. She was probably just coming back from Minneapolis. She probably escaped. <laughs> <laughs> she was wanting to escape. You didn't get arrested, huh? She didn't get arrested, right. <laughs> oh, my goodness. More on that later. Yeah, yeah. right, right, yeah. right. You know, uh, th- this is a great question. But, I mean, it's we don't know, quite honestly. Because I mean, just this morning, and every couple of days, I'm getting another email about you know another cancellation. Um, but it, we're really into the unknown um, because the venues, for sure, won't be opening uh, more than likely throughout the summer. I mean, all the festivals have been canceled. 
Wow. Uh, all of the, all of the wow. well-known festivals, Newport, uh, Umbria, wow. um, Ravinia, Ravinia, which is, of course, in Chicago, you know, they have an amazing uh, summer season of everything. Mm. And the whole season has been wiped out. Wow. Um, mm. So so for the arts in general, like the orchestras, everything, mm. everything is on, is on hold. Um, and uh, we probably won't know anything before September. Now, everyone's planning for 2021. Basically, that's where everything is. Everything's getting pushed to 2021. There may be some events that'll take place later this year, but it's all wait and see. And and uh, and the other thing, man, is we don't know how many of these clubs are going to be able to come back. Yeah. Including the Village Vanguard. Oh, my God. Um, there was an article about that. So because, you know, the Village Vanguard, which, of course, is basically the world's oldest jazz club and the most venerated jazz club. Um, and though it's in a landmark building, they don't own the building. They still pay rent. Mm. So, and we know mm. how New York real estate goes. That's right. So, if if the Vanguard goes, man, that mm. would be such a blow to the music mm. that, that I don't know that we can recover from, quite honestly. Mm. But um, but we're in a wait and see mode. So, um, you know, and and we're working with all of these young musicians who are, you know, have just come to New York to study. Their whole life is on hold right now. Wow. Um, now everyone's making an effort to keep the music going by way of, you know, internet and zoom and all of these things. But, um, in terms of live performance, we just don't know it. I mean, we think it'll come back, but, but it'll, you know, it'll be transformed, but we don't know to what extent. So. Steve, do you, do you find this time more productive for you? Like I know people said during the plague, like masterpieces were written and stuff. Billie Eilish Mm. got some, she got, Complex wrote a story about her writing one song during the quarantine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, not for me, not yet. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've basically been trying to finish up my schoolwork. And this summer, quite honestly, will now be spent getting my tech chops together because we anticipate on being in distance learning mode when we go back in fall. So I may get back to some composing and practicing and writing, but uh, but uh, the bulk of my summer will be getting my Zoom chops together. I'm sure there'll be other platforms coming because I'll have to revamp all my syllabi um, to adjust to this new mode of learning, so new mode of teaching. So, uh, yeah, I think it just depends on the individual. Mm. Hey, Aaron, what do you uh, – I, I kind of want to get into uh, – I'd like you to talk about uh, – talk. I, I hate that, just for a record. Hey, Kurt, you've seen that in our profession – it used to be you ask questions. Hey, Steve, what do you think about this? <laughs> now the whole thing of the last few years has been talk about uh, Steve. Talk about what the fuck do you mean talk about? What's the question? You know, <laughs> you know. Do use it anyway. But uh, <laughs> I've been more and more concerned over the past, I don't know, few years about us just moving toward this police state. You know, uh, I mean, and I think that a lot of white people, in particular, are in denial about this thing. Black folks, we've been living with a police state in our neighborhoods forever. If you live in any predominantly black neighborhood, we've always been in a police state. But now more and more you look at, you know, Kurt, you wrote about uh, running while black. Uh, Aaron, you know, some of your colleagues were arrested. I mean, police, a legitimate news organization Mm -hmm. doing their job, uh, arrested Mm -hmm. on TV. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. it's this ongoing militarization of police state and i guess I, how do each of you see that and what the hell do you do about it if you see that happening or do you think this is just kind of happenstance that if this is going to blow over this is going to blow over no i don't think so <laughs> uh, the police state and the and heavy duty policing is so entrenched in in this culture I just, you know, I used to cover, when I was at the LA Times, I covered, I covered the LAPD for a while. And mm-hmm. I wrote a lot about crime and a lot about gangs in South LA and East LA. And, and so, uh, you know, I have a fair amount of experience with, with uh, you know, both sides of the equation, really. Um, and I mean, it's just such a big part of the city budgets. It's such a big part of that, that culture. Is so the culture of policing is so hard to change right now. 
And you know, one thing that I noticed, you know, I was covering, it was, it was, it was you know, after Iraq and the, and the wars, you know, you get a lot of these guys coming back from these wars and, the, you know, what jobs can they do? They sign up to become police officers. Mm. And um, veterans who are taking their kind of combat mentality, becoming police officers, they're out on the streets of L.A., Seattle, wherever. And um, it's just, you know, it's hard to it's hard to get that mentality out of them. Plus, you have then, you know, these the departments like, you know, the bulking up with their, I mean, look at, look at this, some of the, I mean, they're like small armies. Yeah. <laughs> and the, just the, just the, just mm-hmm. the, uh, the guns that they have and the armor and the, man, it's just, it's so deeply entrenched and man, I don't know. I'm not really optimistic about that. really, to be honest with you, I have met, I mean, I, I gotta say, I mean, I, I do believe policing can, you know, is a, it's an honorable profession. I don't, right. I, don't I don't believe, you know, and I know some pretty, I know some damn good cops, actually, especially yeah. I wrote about some guys down in South L.A., down Jordan Downs, the projects there that, you know, two brothers who were just like, man, they were just a different, they were like social workers more than, I mean, mm. but, but everybody, I mean, the thing is they got respect from everybody, mm. from the hardcore gang dudes, you know, Crips and, and Bloods down there and to, you know, I mean, they, because they earned it. I mean, they, they respected yeah. people. And, but it's not like they would be soft on them. So, you know, it's not like they would like look the other way, but they weren't, they, they worked into the community. Now to me, that's the way that it should be. They weren't trying to be macho tough and, you know, for it, it's not about that. So mm-hmm. it can be but, done <clears throat> in a way that's, yeah, I don't know. I could go on and on about that. I, I don't know what you guys, I find the relationship, like, Black people and their relationship to police is kind of complicated. Like, in my neighborhood in Harlem, um, we live, I live right next to a park that was shut down because of the pandemic. And there, are, I think, a lot of, like, drug addicts and homeless folks would be in that park all day. So now they've had to find somewhere else to go. And some of them have gotten into, like, around my apartment area and now there's been like a, a rash of thefts of like boxes from Amazon. So I find people calling police more often, but then they're also bothered when they like, when, but whenever the police show up, there's always this like, why are they here? What happened? Like, right. They're like, it's kind of like you want to be protected from violence and crime, but you don't want the extra ish that yeah. sometimes comes with their presence. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a tough line to walk. Cause I mean, if we all put ourselves in that position, if it's your box is stolen, you're pissed and you don't care mm-hmm. who did it. You know, you're not going to say, well, that was a sociology. You said, where the hell is my, you know, is my blender, you know, yeah. and who punishes. So I guess that's a really uh, hard thing. But I mean, how do you roll this thing back? Is it that um, everybody black, white and indifferent has to say, you know, this just can't be a black protest. You know, uh, you know, it seems like everybody has to understand that nobody benefits by living in a police state. You know, uh, and again, I could be, you know, kind of a little paranoid about this kind of stuff. <laughs> Maybe I'm defining something that is not to happen. But, you know, Steve, when you're talking about, you know, to me, when the arts dry up, the art seems to be that that line of demarcation or that safety net that protects us from this, you know, the, the, the roughness and the authoritarian nature of society. You know, art is just so important to, mm-hmm. you know, to keeping us from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I think we're going through a really transformative time. I mean, obviously this whole COVID situation has, has revealed ongoing issues we've had in America. Um, but, uh, you know, but now we're, we're dealing with, you know, economic issues. Um, also, well, you know, we're talking about our students who are in college now, their, their scene will be transformed. Uh, so, I mean, in sports, um, you know, so we have so much more at stake now. And, um, and then of course the politics, <laughs> where are we in our politics? Because that affects public policy. There's so much up in the air right now, and um, I, I think a lot of it will will uh, a lot of it will be determined by what's going to happen in the election. Quite frankly, 
Yeah. Uh, Kurt, I know you have to leave uh, yeah. in a minute, but just before you do, the other article you wrote about uh, running while black, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, this is kind of related to what we're talking to now. What, you know, what you tried to impart uh, through that article? Well, it was really about, you know, I think I mentioned, you know, I live in a predominantly white neighborhood. I mean, this this neighborhood is, I always say, I don't don't think another black male adult lives probably within 10 blocks of me, right? Mm -hmm. This is Seattle. (laughs) It's just different that way. And, um, you know, a lot of really good, well-meaning, progressive, liberal folks, right? But folks who don't really have a whole lot of experience with black folks. It's a, it's a, there, there is a black community here, but it's small, very segregated, deeply redlined city. Mm, you know, wow. I live in a in a city that used or in a neighborhood that used to have you know deep, deep and heavily enforced racial covenants. And I'm not even in, oh, I'm, not wow. in a, I'm not in a suburb. I'm in I'm close to downtown, right? <laughs> and and uh, so because of that, there's a certain kind of racial. Uh, I always say it's like a, a naivete, right? Folks just. They, they mean well, but they definitely have their, their blind spots, a lot of blind spots. And, um, you know, always the, for me, it's always the biggest concern. You know, I go out jogging. I jog sometimes with my son, who's nine years old, and especially during the, the pandemic. We've been using that to kind of break the stress at, you know, about five o'clock in, in the in, you know, four or five o'clock in the afternoon, early evening. But my, my, my biggest concern is always, you know, people looking at me thinking the worst, <laughs> thinking I'm somebody who's going to be breaking into their house or just running down the street, just done something, <laughs> calling the right. cops. Right. Oh, I see. You know, you can see it on the, you, you see the, the, those social media or those, like, what is it, next door? There's an online pl- platform for the neighborhood. Right. You see people, there's a lot of paranoia in this neighborhood. And a lot of break-ins in this neighborhood. And frankly, the break-ins are done by white junkies. <laughs> Right. You know, because I mean, there's a lot of those kind of close to where I live. But there's a real high, a lot of concern about about crime. The story was really about my mental process. When I have to when I when you go jog, you you're trying to be relaxed. You're trying to kind of be get into a meditative state, feel good. But I always have to have this thing going on in my mind. You know, why did that cop? Why did that cop car just go by me? What? Why did it just go by me twice? Why is that yeah. lady looking at me? Is she looking at me? You know, you just don't know. Another thing is like, I love architecture, right? And I love, you know, I, I like to stop. I, in an ideal world, I would sometimes, I, in an ideal world, I would stop and take some pictures of houses and, and then look at, oh, yeah, I want to, maybe I could do mm. something like that in my front yard. Mm. I, <laughs> not in this neighborhood. I barely <laughs> slow down, you know? Right. And it's crazy. I mean, this is like, and this is a very liberal neighborhood too, but I just don't want to take the chance. You know, and, 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 you know, trying to explain to my son just my feelings about that, my tension and how I wrestle with it. And then the story was also, you know, after the killing in Georgia, just, you know, I was just done. I was just, I was just, you know, I just, I just didn't want to go out. I didn't want to, you know, and then I guess the last thing too, I I think part of this is just that all this stuff is like a form of terrorism for us. Right. Like we just don't know. That's part of the problem. Like you just don't know. Is that person looking at me like with bad intent? Are they looking at me? Like you just don't, you never know. Right. Like what's going to, why is that the whole idea of like a police officer passes by and you have to worry, like what's going to happen. Right. They might not even be thinking anything. Right. But you never, it's, it's that constant trauma and stress that we have at all, uh, at all times, man. Uh, yeah. the, the black called the black tax. Yeah. Yeah. And right. while running and while running, when you're supposed right. to be free and feeling good. And yeah. So anyway. Hey, Kurt, I know you got a role, man. That was a great yeah. uh, Kurt Streeter, uh, national reporter, columnist uh, <laughs> for the New York Times, really one of the outstanding uh journalists in the country man it's always a pleasure kurt yeah, and appreciate uh, you. Yeah, stay yeah. safe out there man but keep turning it out brother yeah well yes. i'll try i'll try Indeed. take yeah. care everybody. thanks a lot kurt all right, all right kurt. Yep. yep once again today's podcast is brought to you by audible audible has over 180,000 book titles to choose from for your iphone android kindle or mp3 player for you the listeners of the bill Roden on sports podcast 
Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. We highly recommend that you check out the classic $40 Million Slaves, The Rise, Fall, and Redemption of the Black Athlete by the one and only William C. Roden. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports for your free audiobook. Bill, I have a question for you and and all of this because, um, I mean, as someone who is like yourself, who has seen um, a lot of this happen before, and I'm speaking of you know, the 60s riots, 70s riots, upheaval, you know, political upheaval, cultural upheaval, all the changes. Um, you know, you went to HBCU and, um, and of course, uh, I mean, just all the things you've seen and done. Did you, did, I mean, and, and I know no one can ever predict the future. We don't think about, well, things will be like this or like that. But being that this is 2020, did you, ever conceived that we would be here with this stuff at this time because in a sense things have not changed in 40 50 60 years did you ever think that we would be here at this moment at this time you know that's 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 a a great question uh when that was first planted in my mind the fact that i I see us as being on this this gigantic merry-go-round you know and you know the kind of the merry-go-round you get on the and you ride. You probably, if you measure how far you go, just in circles, you probably travel about, I don't know, maybe like two miles <laughs> in the course of that ride. But the ultimate, when it stops, you really haven't gone anywhere because you get mm-hmm. off and you get off at the same spot. Although mm-hmm. you row, you ridden like two, a mile, you know. Right. Right. And and so I think of what my my father said. Um, he was maybe 93, 94. He passed away when he was 94, but he said, maybe when he was like 93, he said, you know, I just thought that we would be a lot further. Things would be better. And I thought, wow, that's odd for him to say, because, you know, Obama was a president. He lives see that. But now I get what he's saying, is that you see the merry-go-round factor in that things go round and round and round. You, you, know, you see different things, but the power dynamic has not changed. Mm-hmm. You know, more and more black folks, uh, you know, as this epidemic has shown, more black folks disenfranchised than ever. Right. Uh, and you probably have more wealthy black people. But what the power structure tries to do is say that those, quote, unquote, wealthy black people are the rule, not the exception. And they try to make those exceptions the rule. So to answer mm-hmm. your question, man, I just, I have always seen what we're in. I, I just think as black folks, man, we're running this existential race, this existential race with no end. All you can do, all I can do, all you can do is run as hard as you can do. Run as hard as you can run. Uh, Hand off to the next generation and tell them you got to run as hard. But there is no end to this race. And I think Mm -hmm. that when you get to a point where you say, well, you know, we saw this, or we, I think it's a mistake. And I just think given the deep-seated racial and racist animus toward black folks in this country, man. I don't know if it'll ever be over mm-hmm. in, in my generation, your generation, Aaron's generation, maybe even Jamal in your son's generation. I just think that this stuff is so deeply entrenched in greed, in money, because all this depends on white people who've got all these riches decide they want to share. And that shit ain't gonna happen, mm-hmm. you know. And you know, uh, Kurt talked about liberal and all that. That's some of that is like our biggest problem. Right. That's probably our biggest problem, right? Within our midst, the quote unquote white liberals who say they're friends, and you know, a lot of those people like the bird washer, the, the dog walk right. in Central Park. Right. Amy. A Cooper. lot of those liberals are like that. That woman, right. Karen. That's our biggest problem. Who by day, the liberals by day. <laughs> and like by night, you know, like the, Scots, the Scottsboro boys, you know, like sending us to our death. You know, oh, I didn't know. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, like, I'm so sorry. You know, so that's how I see it. No, I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to disagree with that in terms of the never ending uh, struggle 
you know, it's weird, but like one a hope a hope would be that maybe this is this is the last this is like a last stand. Kind of You're thing. right, right, like, right. Like that's the hope, you know, right. like that this Trump this you know Trump is kind of the last stand. Um, you know, they had Obama. You got the older generations who who basically put Trump over the top in the election. Um, all the younger groups, uh, you know, had voted for Hillary or whoever, or either, you know, the the Democrats or whatever. I mean, and there and there are problems with that, and it's and that won't change everything either. If it's if it, if it were Hillary instead of Trump, it doesn't mean there'd be no racism for sure. Right. You know what right. I'm saying? So, but part of me does think that this this is kind of a last stand for them. I mean, even even today, I saw news that that uh, Lindsey Graham, senator from South Carolina, was out there telling judges, older judges, older uh, Republican judges that they should step down now before the election so that, so that they can continue to elect or they continue to appoint younger judges. So to me, that almost, it, it feels like it's like, a, it's like a desperate last attempt. Um, I mean, when have you ever heard that? They're telling judges to step down, federal judges to step down if you're on the older side, so we can get this, we can rush this young group in that'll last forever, no matter who, who is elected next, you know, for the next, uh, you know, 20 years or so. Right. So, to me, that's, that's like, they, they, they even see it, that this could, this might be a last stand. But what, what do you guys, Aaron, what do you think? And, and Steve, I'm curious, I answer your own question. What do you guys, what do you guys think? Uh, do you think this is, because I see what you're saying, Jamal, about the last stance. But shit, man, they're pretty young people who voted for Trump, right? And who believe in that shit. But right. what do you what do you guys think, Aaron and Steve? What do you guys think? You're, you know, I think Aaron, you're in your 30s, Steve, like what, like you know, 50s. Do you guys think this is the last stand? I mean, a last stand in terms of like this protest with like in terms of just white supremacy, whiteness. <laughs> no, I feel like. I've heard people call it a death rattle of white supremacy, but I feel like it's alive and well. Like Dylan Roof, who shot up um, Mother Emanuel in South Carolina, was 19. Like, right, right. It's so young. Um, I, it's getting passed down somehow. And you have these... I feel like there's a confusion between like what it means to be white, like anti-racist and liberal. Like, I think this woman, Amy Cooper showed us, I think she, I think she was defined as a white liberal, but then she immediately was like, ready to like, be like a white, a black man is attacking me. Like, what? Right. Like who taught you that? Um, and why, why is that in your arsenal? If you're this liberal loving I person, like, no, it's not over. I think, but I, I, I do believe in incremental change. I have to say, you know, there are a bunch of chief, chiefs of police that came out against, that condemned the killing of, of uh, George Floyd. I don't know about you guys, I've never seen that before. Um, mm -hmm. I was heartened by that. I don't know if, I, if, that, if that's false hope or what, but I feel like I've seen a lot of overwhelming support, like, or kind of a condemnation of the killing that I don't normally, I feel like there's a lot more, usually there's a lot more like, well, wasn't he a thug? Was he a really a good man? I feel like that's not happening. That comes I, next week. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> or, or in the eventual trial, if there is one, if he's ever charged. I mean, we've seen this many, 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 many times before where even if they do get arrested, you know, what ha will they, will they eventually be, uh, you know, convicted for it and, and pay a price for it. Uh, what do you think? What do you think, Steve? I mean, you asked, you yeah. asked the question. Uh, you, you live long enough to, you know, to, to say, you know, whether you're stunned by this or whether you're still hopeful. Well, not, not stunned. Well, no, stunned, but not surprised. I mean, because we, we, we know this is how things are. Uh, I, I think to Aaron's point, uh, and putting it into perspective, if we if we look at uh, how far we've come post Civil War to now, right, change, right, right, change right. has been has been very incremental. And like I tell a lot of my students, you know, when they ask me about, you know, well, how how do I shape a career? You know, so well, for most of us, for ninety nine point nine percent of us, the career is 
mostly small steps with a few big ones in between, but it's mostly small steps. Now, of course, there are exceptions to those rules where, you know, you have someone to win American Idol or something and then, you know, they'll become a superstar. And, and usually that doesn't last too long. But, um, but I certainly don't see a, a sea change happening. Uh, I think change will be very, very incremental and it may take us, it will take us, I think, you know, four or five generations before we can achieve what, even what we would conceive as to be the ideal. Uh, because it comes down to this, who controls the resources? And, that, and that's a glo- on a global level. You know, when you look at Africa, who, who's, who's in Africa now controlling resources? The Chinese. So, um, so, and now, you know, we're talking about not just oil anymore, we're talking about water. Something as basic as water is now like, who controls the water sources? Because that's becoming a precious commodity. Look at Flint, Michigan. But look, look at uh, what's happening in some of the, the uh, you know, lands of, of the indigenous people in the Dakotas or in, in Canada. Um, Canada, to its credit, has, has begun a campaign of reconciliation. Uh, so they are ahead of us in, in that sense. You know, that may take us another 50 years to get to that level. So I think it will be very incremental, um, and particularly with these laws that protect cops, um, because look at what happened in Minneapolis. Uh, if either one of us had done that same act to any citizen, we would have been arrested. Right. We would have been in jail right now, and they would have worked everything out later, <laughs> you know. And um, they probably would have put our, our bond at like, you know, $500,000 or something, knowing that we can't afford it right. in most sense. So, you know, a lot has to happen on a, on a bunch of levels for, for these kind of changes, uh, cultural, um, uh, constitutionally. Uh, I would hope that if, uh, and this is what I think is the key, no matter who wins the election as president, if both the House and the Senate aren't turned right. to a Democratic majority, we are in trouble. Um, because even if Trump is reelected, if either one of those houses doesn't turn, uh, or, or, you know, both of those houses don't turn to, uh, to blue, you know, not much is going to get done. And uh, so even if Biden wins, we still need both houses because they now they have to work at the laws. They have to overturn a lot of, have to undo the damage that Trump has done in these four years. So, which is, which is a lot, a lot. Yeah. So a lot has to happen. Right. And so, you know, speaking of that, let's, let's talk about uh, Minnesota a little bit. We've seen the circumstances <laughs> before protests uh, turn, turn into, I guess, riots, um, looting, this was a, f- a first that I can remember in my lifetime. A, uh, a priest, they, you know, they actually went after a precinct and burned down and burned down the precinct. So I guess people can't say, "Oh, you're burning down just your own neighborhood." They, can, they won't be able to say that uh, <laughs> this time. Um, and then, and then, of course, Trump's reaction, which I've never seen blatantly from a president, and some could argue maybe at least we know where he's coming from. So maybe it's not as bad because maybe other presidents felt the same, but which is well, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. but he, but he actually, but, but that he actually tweeted when the looting starts, the shooting starts, which is of course a reference mm-hmm. to the Miami police chief uh, in 1967 uh, during riots there. Uh, you know, what's, what's your take on, on where we go from here as far as have we hit rock bottom, you know, as far as this goes? Don't you think, don't you guys think he had to say that, you know, I mean, all these messages are to his base, you know, and, to, and just to the law and order thing, you know, all those kinds of things, you know, law and order, shoot to kill. When the looting starts, the shooting starts. And you can just hear the applause. And that's that's right. You know, that's that's right. We got to bring these bugs, you know, that kind of stuff, you know. Um, I don't know. Again, again, it just seems to me that he's just catering to his base. Uh, and, and to a lot of white folks who feel like that. Uh, what do you guys think? You know, this reminds me a little bit of when, you guys remember in Os- when Oscar Grant was killed, um, and, the, and I, I was in Oakland, and there were a lot of, there, I don't think the, the, the kind of, the way the protesters, are, the, the new protesters that are actually kind of 
uh, damaging property, setting fires and stuff. It's not a lot of people. It's like there are, I think the majority of people from what I understand are like holding signs and just marking and you have this subset and it's unclear who's in it. It's like, I'm not even, I've, I heard a story about a cop who like threw a rock through a window. So I'm just kind of like, who's mm. doing this? Right. And a lot right. of times, people are paid to like wear stuff like it's weird so i'm just waiting to hear about who actually is doing this um, that's such a great point aaron because i think that's that's you know this that that adds to the sense of chaos which i think benefits the status quo and particularly this administration the whole idea is to you know keep people confused you mm-hmm. don't know who's doing what who's the good guys who's the bad guys you just don't know you're right. Mm-hmm. You could have have police, whether in your office, the ones who are starting this stuff, stirring mm-hmm. it up. You know, particularly remember, I think Steve, as we head toward this election, you know, you're in a situation and, and with an administration that will do anything, anything to win. And as we've seen before, there is no such thing as below the belt. There is no belt. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, there is no belt. That's right. You know, there is no norm. So and that's why I think you could you, good luck getting a conviction. Uh, in, in, in this situation, I mean, you already have, you know, Attorney General uh, Bill Barr, who's the last person that I would want involved in any kind of uh, in any kind of situation where you actually want justice. Um, right. And he's already talking to the, the Minnesota powers that be. So good luck getting any right. any kind of justice in this case. Yeah. Yeah. Were you well, surprised that the mayor was like, this is, I think this is racism, like it's leading that way and that he condemned it so openly? Like, was that, was I too excited about that? Prob- probably. Yeah. <laughs> well, the first thing I wanted to know was, he a, is, is he a Democratic mayor or Republican? I mean, I'm, you almost think about that. Like, if he's a Democratic mayor, this is all about defeating Trump. Uh, listen, you guys, just sort of in a, in a, you know, before we wrap this up, um, just generally, are you, you know, we're in this time where we're always trying to look at silver lining. And Aaron, I always say you're the, you're, you're the, uh, you, you, more than anybody else I've ever known, looks at things as silver linings, <laughs> you know. So uh, yes, yeah, she's really so positive. Uh, but do each of you see silver linings in any of this uh, for where we are now, either professionally or personally or at any level? Uh, you know, uh, do, do each of you see silver linings in this, Aaron? I mean, I, I'll say this. I'm never happy when someone loses their job. When Amy Cooper was outed, I felt like, okay, white liberals, you guys have been wanting an example of why, like, what's wrong. Like, that is the example. Like, we finally had someone, like, an obvious, like, a blatant, like, this is what it looks like to use your whiteness to we- as, as a weapon. And um, I think the conversations are moving. Like, I think when I, when I remember uh, about Michael Brown and Eric Garner when they were killed, um, they were murdered, even though they, I know there was no conviction, um, like there was, I just felt like there was so much more skepticism and there were, to me, I feel like uh, politicians are acting faster. I feel like um, I'm seeing different groups coming together. Like I, I feel good about that. I mean, maybe I'm celebrating too soon, but I'll take it for now and then we'll go from there. What do you think, Steve? Well, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I would call it a silver lining, but I do think that any time of adversity is an opportunity. Right. an opportunity uh, to assess and to make change. Um, like one of the questions I have about what happened last night in Minneapolis over the last couple of days with the protests, unlike some of the other instances like uh, in, in Ferguson and other, you know, here in New York, and maybe, maybe they just weren't on TV, but where were, where were the community leaders? Is, right. there, is there a vacuum of community leaders in Minneapolis? Because we didn't see that. And mm-hmm. I feel like if there were community leaders with strong ties and who had powerful voices, and maybe they were there, they were muted, I don't know. But if, if some of them were there and they were able to step up, um, whether they're from the church, whether they're from uh, you know, young people, um, maybe they could have helped to quell some of 
some of that, what, what happened. It certainly couldn't have stopped the anger, but, but what is painful, you know, oftentimes in these riots is that these buildings and stores that get destroyed are stores in our communities. Yes. You know, and again, I know that anger can be blind, but I, you know, so to your point, I hope that these voices, these community leaders will emerge. And um, if they weren't there, then maybe they will emerge now, um, you know, and, and say, okay, we, we, we need, to, we, now we need to have a conversation among ourselves because now that they've heard us, what's next? Right. right. That's the thing, because this has to translate into action, action, not, not the same kind of action, but action to make real concrete change uh, institutionally. So I hope these voice, voices will emerge. Right. I was actually having a, a conversation with a friend last night and it was more it was more in terms of, uh, I guess, you know, the coronavirus and its, its effect on you know, talking about college sports and and how and how they're being exposed. So in, in that way, I think there is kind of a silver lining, you know, that we can see you, you get to see how, you know, the, the corruption that's involved, the, how it's all it really is all about money. Yes. In terms of in terms of the you know, college sports in particular, how they're, they're willing to play games without even even uh, students on campus, and yep. and the and you, you get to see the blatant hypocrisy. Yep. So so something like this does will shed a light to to everybody on on how you know, you know just just how things you know how badly things are being run and how and how blatantly corrupt. Uh, people are so I think so I think that is kind of a silver li- lining that we get that this is like that it's exposed um, right you know how you know how ruthless and how corrupt this the system is yeah I think that's a great point Jamal maybe it's a point to end on that you know for I think there are have always been in our country uh, you know decent people decent thinking people you know people who um you know, people who, uh, uh, you know, white people, people of all colors, nationalities, who went down to the South, down to Mississippi, Alabama, because, you know, they respected what the United States stands for, what it was. Well, they, they may not necessarily be crazy about black folks, but they are crazy about what this nation supposedly stands for. And I think that, I'm not sure who mentioned it, maybe Steve, maybe who mentioned it, but I think there's been this complacency among all of us. You know, it, you know, it's like, oh, well, the next person to do it. Oh, our father's generation, you guys march. Oh, you guys fight. And I think now it's squarely upon uh, people who really believe in, quote, unquote, democracy, not just the words, but really what it meant, freedom. And hopefully there'll be some white folks astute enough to realize that what happened to the black man in Minnesota? What happened to the black man in uh, Georgia? What you know? What happened to the black man in Staten Island? Will happen to you <laughs> right. if you let this slide? It's going to happen to you when they run out yeah. of us. It That's happens right. to you. It's going. It's, it's right. not about black. It's about power. That's right. Punishing anyone, anyone who basically stands up to it. And I think you'll see some young white folks, you know, seeing that. But like, like Kurt was saying, I think there are a whole bunch of white folks who are even denial, but like the guts, like the guts to stand up and, 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 and fight. So um, right. like you, Jamal, maybe that's the silver lining that more and more people will join uh, a fight for democracy and freedom and justice because they realize it's about self-preservation. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully. Right. And to that point, Bill, I just wanted to add, I think everybody, but especially black people right now, we need, you guys, we need a team. Like we need someone to process this stuff with. And I've been so grateful. Like, um, you know, I, I called Bill, but like when, as soon as I, like almost as soon as I saw the video, I was like, Bill, did you see this? Oh my God. What do you think? <laughs> like, it, cause it, I, you know, I think I'm smart, but like, I will, like Bill has seen so much more and like, how can I process this? Like, how do you move past feeling like so depressed? Um, and the same thing that I do that for my cousins and my brother, like my, when Ahmaud Arbery was killed, my brother was like, I don't want to run anymore outside. And I had to be like, mm. no, you got to run outside. Mm. Um, but this is how, this is, these are things we can do to keep you safe 
but just also know that I think safety is kind of a state of mind. Like, I don't think anybody's guaranteed their safety, but there are things you can do to hopefully increase it. But anyway, so, yeah. I'm glad I get to talk to you guys about this because this stuff is tough, you know? It's like, it how is. do you feel better about this? Yeah, and you, and you, you, you know, you ask, uh, I guess my sense of optimism is, is something that uh, Roger Wilkins uh, has told me a long time ago. He said, well, I asked him, what's your sense of optimism? He said, well, my sense of optimism is that I, I think of my ancestors, my great-great-grandparents who never breathed a free life, a free breath in their lives, mm. but yeah, who woke up, you know, kind of looking forward to the next day, you know? And I do think about that. I think about, okay, all right, we're in this. This is our, our perilous situation. This is our time, you know? Uh, those of us who are like, you know, 60s, oh, in our 60s, okay, this is our time to finish strong, you know, these next 20 years. But it's also to make, Aaron's generation, give that sense of, because you, you guys are the warriors. <laughs> You're going to have to do the real heavy lifting, you know, but to give you the sense of strength and all that. And we're going to have to get, you know, to fight. So I think there's a sense of optimism just on the fact that our ancestors faced some harrowing shit. <laughs> That's <laughs> harrowing. Right. That's you right. know, you yeah. know, Steve, when you look at cats like Bird and just some musicians of errors, you know, who just, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's you know. right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, when they traveled, especially in the deep South, those guys were chased by white mobs and they were just trying to play a gig. Right. <laughs> you know? Uh, <laughs> right. So, so right. you're absolutely right. I think when we think about what our forefathers and mothers went through to get us to this point, it puts it in perspective, and Aaron, to your point, I think that's one of the things that helps us to reconcile what we are. We said, "Well, look, if if those folks had given up, we wouldn't be here now." Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. You're right. No, exactly. Exactly. All right. Hey, right, so listen, guys. Um, I think we've come to the. Uh, we have not come to the end of the issue. No. But we come to. I got to go back and watch. Has anybody, on a lighter note, uh, <laughs> is anybody watching? Uh, you know, Aaron gave, <laughs> Aaron gave a great answer. Uh, we spoke earlier today, and I think somebody is asking her, you know, on a work call, well, what's everybody watching? And she is saying, shit, I'm watching, uh, I'm watching George Floyd. <laughs> no, seriously, seriously. What are you watching? <laughs> what are you watching? I've <laughs> changed the conversation quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, but I do think, uh, you know, um, you know, Aaron, Steve, Jamal, I, I do think, and Aaron brought this point up, that each of us, you know, if you're in a situation where you're like maybe the only black person somewhere, well, it's up to you to say something. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have to. I mean, that's why you're in that room. And, they've been, right. and it takes courage. And it takes guts, you know, to be, to speak up. And not necessarily, you know, you know, like banging on the thing, but I think sometimes our white brothers are in denial. They don't want to deal with this. Right. But you you speak up, and all of a sudden it brings everybody into this depth of reality and truth. Mm-hmm. It's also what, you know, a couple athletes did, you know, with Kaepernick. You know, how yes. a lot of the fans were like, hey, you know, I don't, I don't want to deal with this. I watch this for entertainment. But, you know, some athletes said, no, 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 no. You know, this is my reality. I'm going to bring you to, to reality real fast. Right. right. So when we speak next week, I think we'll have to bring up the idea of, of, of college. That's like, I mean, Jamal, you brought up a great point about these young brothers being dragged back to campus, mm-hmm. you know, in football. And most of them are like all these black kids. Right. And some of whom are, you know, but anyway, without going off, we, we could deal with that next week. Uh, you know, that plantation. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, but for now, um, you know, Jamal, the great Jamal Murphy, great job as usual. Uh, Aaron Matthewson, great job as usual. Steve Wilson, great job as usual. And, uh, you know, let's meet back here next week. Same time, same station. All right. right? Sounds good. And we're listening, you're listening to uh, the sounds of the great Steve Wilson right now, by the way. Love. Thank you, folks. Cool. Everybody stay safe. 
You too. All right. Be well. All right. Take care. For listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube. You know, when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks, that's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.